Welcome to First Baptist Church. You're listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead. Please check us out on the internet at fbcboron.org. Please take out your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 2. We'll be reading verses 17 through 24. Let us come before the Lord and pray for the reading and the preaching of His Word. Father, we come before You, Lord, with our hearts and minds open to you, Lord. We pray, Lord, that you would help us to hear what it is you want us to hear, that you would take your word and that you would use it to shape us more and more in the image of Christ, and you would overcome the deficiencies of the preacher, Lord. I pray, Father, that you would strengthen me spiritually and physically for the task at hand. But that, Father, all of us, Lord God, would take this word and make it a part of who we are, apply it to our lives and grow in our understanding of you, Lord, and that all of that is for your glory. Father, we pray that you would continue to bless this congregation and grow us, Lord God, and that we would make much of Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> Romans chapter 2, beginning in verse 17. And the word of the Sovereign Lord reads, But if you call yourself a Jew and rely on and improve what is excellent, because you are instructed from the law, and if you were sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor, uh, an instructor of, the, of the foolish, a teacher of children, having in the law the embodiment of the truth, the knowledge and truth, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? You who say that one must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? You who boast in the law, dishonor God by breaking the law. For as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among Gentiles because of you. The uh, reformer and pastor John Calvin once wrote, Hypocrisy can plunge the mind of a man into a dark abyss when he believes his own self-flattery instead of God's verdict. So as we begin this new year, many of us have already become, been struggling with our New Year's resolutions that many of us have made. And you don't have to call it New Year's resolutions. Some people say, I never make New Year's resolutions. Okay, call them goals or objectives or growth points, whatever you want to call them, right? right? But the point's still the same. There is something typically that most of us want to fix. There are things in our lives we want to change. There are things that we want to grow in. And many of us have made at least small ones, some of us big ones, commitments to grow in some of these areas, whether it's your health, whether it's your finance, whether it's your relationships. Maybe it's just simply a commitment to read the Bible and pray every day. Some people, for them, that's a big commitment. And many of us have made those, those conscious efforts to grow in 2022. But many of us are also struggling to keep some of those commitments. right? And it's not that our intentions are, are insincere. Because the things that we want to change are very real. We want, you know, we, we want to do them. I know that I want to I lose weight. I want to read more books. I want to spend more time with my wife. I want to get more things done. There are lots of projects that just kind of keep floating around my life. I'd like to get them done. The, the changes we want to make individually, you know, are, are real and important to us. The problem is, is that the changes can be hard to make. We all know that, especially when you're trying to change habits. Breaking bad habits and starting new habits 
can be extremely hard. Why? Because they're habits, right? Habits just seem to be a part of who we are. Our habits become part of our lives. They become second nature to us. We do many things that we do out of habit. That's why it's hard to quit habits and start new ones. I actually quit chewing tobacco December 24th, 2011, which is just over 10 years ago. And I have to tell you, that was, it was a hard thing to do, especially the first few days and weeks. I had headaches. I was grumpy. You don't believe me? Just ask my family, right? And the reason why it was hard is not only did I have an addiction to nicotine, but it was also really just a continual part of my life. It was actually kind of part of my identity. It was part of who I was. I mean, I never left the house without my wallet, my keys, my phone, and a can of snuff. And if I ever got to the point where I had less than half a can of snuff, I began to panic like I'm going to run out. In fact, I'm just going to tell you, it was so bad. There was When I was younger and really, really poor, I was sitting on the couch going, I'm hungry, but I don't have any money. And then I reached in my pocket and pulled out my snuff can and realized I was almost out of snuff. Man, I turned the couch upside down and found exactly enough change to support my nicotine habit, right? It was a part of who I was, part of my identity. Ask my wife. She hated it. She hated it. We were talking about that the other day. She's like, I praise the Lord, right? But I, I tried quitting and I failed many times before. And, and I would get a few days in, but then it would just be too hard for either me or for her. And then I would give up because, because breaking habits are, are difficult. But praise the Lord that I was finally able to overcome that by His grace. And now it's been over 10 years since I gave that habit up. But the truth is, habits, as we all know, can be hard to break. Right? And if it were not hard, then we would all be very different right now. Right? There are lots of things that we would already have overcome. Right? There are lots of things in our lives that would have already changed. And if you can't say amen to that, you ought to say ouch. Yeah, exactly. Well, as hard as habits are to break, do you know what's even harder to break than habits? Traditions. Traditions can be even harder to break than habits. Whether they're family traditions, whether they are school traditions, whether they are church traditions. And you might think, well, why would people need to change traditions? Well, the answer is quite simple. Just like habits, where you can have good habits and bad habits, there are good traditions, and there are not-so-good traditions. There are traditions that are really helpful, like expository preaching, observing the Lord's table, right? Family Thanksgiving dinners, team prayer before a football game, examples of very good traditions, but then there are traditions that people have that are counterproductive and maybe even harmful, like hazing freshmen in high school, which, I mean, I'll praise the Lord for a bore in high school. Like, that really doesn't happen. But when I was a freshman, every freshman was terrified all the time until freshman year was over, right? Another, another, another tradition that, uh, that's not so productive is drunken parties after graduations. How many people have lost their lives because of that? Or how about fruitcakes at Christmas? A terrible tradition, by the way, just so you know. Or religiously speaking, how about venerating Mary and the saints? Another counterproductive tradition that takes our eyes off of the gospel. Some traditions are really good and some traditions are really bad. And they need to be changed and done away with. But traditions can be, can be very hard to break, especially for Christians. Think about this. When's the last time you sat in a different chair in here, right? Many Christians stubbornly hold on to their traditions, even in the face of good evidence and sound reasoning and solid biblical exegesis. Many people hold on to the traditions that they were given when they were younger without even questioning them. Some Christians hold on to the King James-only tradition. It's the tradition that insists that there's only one true Bible in the world, and that is the King James Version, and that's it. Everything else is a corrupt version of the Bible. And there seems to be no amount of evidence that you can give to someone that will ever change their mind. It is what they were taught, it is what they believe, and nothing you can say will change their minds. 
So don't bother them with the facts. Some Christians also get hung up on the types of worship that people should engage in. Some think that the music that we sing in church must come from a little red book and be called a hymn, right? And not only should it be a hymn sung from a little red book, but it must also be accompanied by the only instrument that God ordained, which was the piano, and that it must be then in the only timing that's biblical, and that's 4-4 timing. Other songs, other types of rhythm, and other instruments like guitars are by them considered to be worldly and not fit for worship. And it doesn't matter, again, what the arguments are, what the facts are, or even what the Bible says about instruments and new songs. Some people in churches have traditions about dress codes. I heard a preacher recently say that if a woman wears pants, she is disobedient to her husband and to God. Every woman I know is really disobedient then, right? Another preacher said that real Christian men have always, from the beginning, worn suits, ignoring completely the truth of history. Another tradition that's really not bad in itself, but one that many people blindly hold on to with stubborn tenacity is the tradition of the altar call. Some people don't even feel like that you've even been to a worship service if there's not been a call to come forward. The first time I was a, when I first became a pastor, um, someone asked me, why don't we have altar calls every week like the Bible teaches? I said, okay, um, show me the passage where the Bible teaches that, and then we'll do it. The reality is, is it doesn't teach it. Worship on Sunday morning, contrary to the American idea of Christianity, worship on Sunday morning is for the believers to come together to worship the living God. It's not an evangelistic crusade. Not to say that we don't preach the gospel. We preach the gospel every Sunday. But the fact of the matter is, is the altar call wasn't even invented until the 1830s. Did you know that? This is, and this is not me saying, this is like objective historical fact. The, it wasn't invented until the 1830s during the Second Great Awakening. Prior to that, so, so think about this. Prior to less than 200 years ago, not one time had a preacher or an evangelist ever said, come down this aisle or slip up that hand. Oh, I see you in the back, right? Those words were never uttered. Now, there is always in the American church and the, the English church and the church all the way back to the very beginning, there's always been gospel proclamation, and there's always been a call to repent and believe the gospel, and there's always been a call to put their faith in Christ, but there has never been such a thing as an altar call before the 1830s. This was, again, invented during the Second Great Awakening, and it was during a time of hyper-emotionalism, and it was made popular by the itinerant preacher Charles Finney. Now, I want you to know, like, when I became a Christian, that was what we did every Sunday, and that's what I thought we were supposed to do because that's the tradition I was given. Now, I'm not saying altar calls are bad. I'm not saying that at all. And I'm not saying that churches should never do them. What I'm saying is that oftentimes people will hold on to a tradition insisting that this tradition is the way it's supposed to be done, not knowing where that tradition comes from, acting as if Christ himself came down and instituted that tradition. There are lots of traditions people hold on to simply because they were exposed to those traditions. There are many traditions that Christians come out. There are many other traditions that Christians uh, across the spectrum stubbornly hold on to simply because that's what they were taught without question, like a particular end times scheme. When I became a Christian, there was one particular end time scheme that was, that was pounded and pounded and pounded and pounded into us. I struggled with it because I couldn't make it square it biblically, right? But what I find is that a lot of people were taught something, whether you're pre-mill, ah-mill, post-mill, whatever mill you want to call yourself, that typically hold on to those things because that's what they were taught. Their traditional understanding of that is because someone, a pastor that they love, taught them that and that's what they believed. 
Or how about the traditional understanding of libertarian free will? Or how about the tradition like that the tradition that everybody seems to hate, but so many churches want to keep holding on to, which is the calling out of visitors. Have you ever been in a church before where you're the first time visitor? And they said, oh, look at our visitor here. Stand up and let us all see you. Isn't that like embarrassing? Everybody hates that tradition. By the way, it's a terrible tradition to have. Just my humble opinion. There are lots of traditions that people hold on to out there, and a lot of them ought to be changed and re-examined. But for some reason, some traditions seem impossible to break. And I think there's a number of reasons for that. First of all, Many of our personal and corporate traditions connect us to the past. There's a sense of continuity when we hold on to a tradition. And I'm not talking about the distant past. I mean, because some of our traditions connect us to the distant past, like the London Baptist 1689 Confession of Faith connects us directly all the way back to the First Baptists, right? But I'm talking about our personal past. Many Christians hold on to our traditions that we grew up with, traditions that we learned Traditions that we, we came to know when we were baby Christians. Traditions that grandma taught us. Right? Traditions that our favorite pastor taught us. And we find letting those things go troublesome because it feels like, in a sense, we're disconnecting ourselves from our Christian experience or our Christian past. I know that there, I, know, I, I can't tell you how many times in my own pastoral life, how many people who have come up to me and tell me with kind of an air of superiority, well, in my old church, this is how we do it, and that's how we do it. Great, thank you. Appreciate that. As if their personal experience is the only way things have ever been done in the church since the time of Christ. Not considering culture and locality and just even just the way people prefer to do things. Another reason that, that it's tough for us to, to change traditions is personal investment. Sometimes we spend many hours and years going to church and doing things a certain way, and it's just kind of like who we are. We just assume that that's how things are to be done. And to change those things for some people seems like all that time and energy was wasted. And participating in those traditions seems to be a waste of time. I have, we have, we have invested in that tradition, tradition heavily. We have argued and defended that tradition. I mean, Kim, Kim and I, when we first became Christians, we went to Calvary Chapel. There were ways that they did things that we really appreciate it. We look back now and go, it's probably not a good tradition. The third reason why traditions are hard to change is because of the, this is how we've always done it. <laughs> Whew. I'm telling you, if there's one that's hard to get over in a older church is, this is how we've always done it. Why do we have a choir here? Because this is how we've always done it. Why a service at 1030 instead of 11? Because this is how we've always done it. Why do we have responsive reading? Duh. That's why we, how we've always done it. Why do you have Lord's Table once a month instead of every week? Well, because this is how we've always done it. I can't tell many times in my ministry life I've heard that. Just because we've always done something doesn't mean we should always do something. And the fourth reason changing traditions can be really, really hard is because people don't like admitting they were wrong. Sometimes letting go of your tradition means admitting that you're wrong about something. Like for me. This almost embarrasses me to talk about, but I'm going to talk about it. Early on, I was taught in my Christian life that when two or more people are gathered Jesus, in Jesus' name, then prayers were more powerful. Because as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 18, where two or more gathered, there I am. And so I used to think that, I used to think, you know, that, that if I wanted to pray about something that was really important to me, then I need to go find someone and say, I need you to agree with me in prayer, right? Because otherwise, me by myself is not effective. And so I'd come and get somebody, you know, I need you to pray with me. I mean, you've heard that before, I'm sure, right? I believed that. I practiced that for years. But then I heard Pastor Bodie Bauckham preach on that particular text, Matthew 18, and he walked through the text line by line and come to realize that it's not about praying more powerfully. That whole text is about church discipline. It is about, Jesus is saying, 
when you have done what you can do, when you have talked to the person individually, when you then have taken somebody to talk to that person who's in sin and they don't listen to you, and then you have taken them to the church, you were to basically cast them out of the church. And in that context, he says, I'm with you. That's the whole point of that entire text, right? It's not about at all effective prayer. It's about church discipline. And so I had to admit, I was wrong. I had been participating in a tradition blindly, not realizing that it was wrong. And I had kind of a bit of resentment in my heart over it a little bit. I was kind of angry with Bodhi for a minute. Like, what are you doing coming in here and stepping on my Christian understanding of things, right? At first, I didn't want to let it go, but then I had to admit I was wrong and understand that the text is true and my theology was incorrect. And so changing... That tradition was painful for me, but I did it. But changing traditions can be very hard. Now, as hard as habits and traditions for us in the 21st century can be, imagine how hard it must have been for those Jews in the first century. For the, for the Jew, their whole life was tradition. They were the nation that God had chosen out from among the other nations of the world. They had a relationship with God unlike the rest of the world. They were given the law of God. They had prophets and priests and a temple so they could actually be near God. There was a point in history they could visibly see the pillar of fire and the pillar of smoke. There was a point in time His Shekinah glory existed in the temple. And they had ritual on top of ritual and ordinance on top of ordinance. And it had been like that for thousands of years, not just for like 20 or 30, for thousands of years. Traditions that rooted all the way back to the Noetic covenant. Traditions rooted all the way to the Abrahamic covenant. Traditions rooted in the Mosaic covenant. And traditions developed during the intertestamental period between the Old and New Testament which led to rabbinic Judaism. And these traditions impacted who they were as a nation and who they were as family members and who they were as community members as well. And these traditions permeated every part of their lives from the way that they dressed, from how they ate, to how they interacted with people of different nations, to the way that they lent money, to how they worshiped, I mean, their whole entire calendar year was rooted in tradition. And they were taught these traditions from the moment of their birth. They were constantly reminded of these things continually all through their childhood. And they were surrounded continually by like-minded people who themselves were immersed in these same traditions. They were in their own little traditional bubble. These traditions became really a part of who they were. It was their identity. It was how they saw the world. They couldn't understand the world outside of those traditions. And so for those living in the first century, it became impossible to tell what traditions were God-ordained and what traditions were man-made. Over the centuries, man-made traditions had crept in, and what was given by God in the law... Um, became distorted, creating a very legalistic form of religion. And this hybrid of traditions became the basis of them being right with God in their own minds. This was the mindset of the people that Paul was addressing in Romans chapter 2. People were deeply rooted in their traditions. Whether good traditions or bad traditions, it was a part of their very fabric of who they were. You see, Paul, in chapter 1, begins his gospel with an indictment of mankind, the truth that God's wrath is being revealed against the unrighteousness of men and the fact that mankind knows God but rejects Him. Mankind, specifically the Gentiles, who he was addressing in chapter 1, knows that God exists, understands His divine nature, and knows exactly what He expects, but mankind hating Him, hating God, loves His sin and rejects God and refuses to give God the very things that He deserves, which is honor, glory, and worship. Instead, mankind throws himself headlong into his desires and sin, and he worships everything and anything that he can besides the God who created him. 
And God revealed that His wrath is against them by giving mankind over to what He wants, which is His sin. Now, in chapter 2, Paul begins to address a group of people who would wholeheartedly go, Amen, Paul. They would agree exactly with what he said. It was the Jews. In fact, if you remember, Paul engages in a diatribe in chapter 2 in this letter where he is having a conversation with an imaginary person. And he's doing this as a literary device to make a point. Paul in chapter 2 is having a conversation with an imaginary Jewish person who represents the common Jewish person and attitude. A Jewish person steeped in these traditions. And these Jews, upon hearing what Paul said in chapter 1, were like, I agree with that. Yes, you are right. They are God-haters. They are people who deserve God's wrath. Right? They would have given an amen to everything Paul said in that first chapter. They were in complete agreement that the Gentiles were, are without excuse. But then in chapter 2, Paul says to these same people, those who were right with God because of their tradition, he says to them, you are also without an excuse. In fact, he says in verse 1 of chapter 2, he says, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul in this diatribe begins to, to, to tear down the arguments that the Jews would have instinctively used to defend themselves. Arguments that were built on their traditions, many of which were man-made traditions. And so Paul says the Jews are basically on equal footing with the Gentiles. They're in the exact same condition, the exact same boat. Because God doesn't judge people, and this is what we learned a couple weeks ago, He doesn't judge people by traditions that they keep, but rather by what they do. God judges everyone by their own actions. And that was the point that Paul was making in chapter 2. And Paul judges all men according to the exact same standard. It's not one standard for this group of people and another standard for another one. It is one standard, and that standard is righteousness. And that standard of righteousness, as we talked about last week, was grounded in God's own nature and nothing less than His perfection. Perfection in our thoughts, perfection in our words, and perfection in our deeds. God's standard for fellowship with Him has always been perfect righteousness, moral perfection in the sight of God. And all people will be judged by that same standard of perfection, which was revealed in His law a law that the Gentiles had written on their hearts, a law that was given directly to the Jews, written down so they could possess it, which means they were especially liable to the judgment of God for failing to obey. But the problem is for the Jews is this was a very hard concept to grasp because their traditions, even though they had the law, even though that they knew that those who broke the law deserved death, their man-made traditions evolved to the point where they didn't think that these things applied to them. They saw themselves as special because of their connection to God historically. They thought that they were right with God simply because they were Jews. That was their tradition. They thought that they were actually taught that Abraham sat at the gates of hell making sure that Jews don't go to hell. They were taught that, that every Jew, even of the unbelieving ones, were destined for God's kingdom. And the reason for this is because they were Jewish by ethnicity and by their tradition. They supposed themselves to be God's people simply because of tradition and because God had given them the law, which was central to their Jewish identity. The law itself began to take on somewhat of a mystic quality. Everett Harrison, in his commentary in Romans, says this. He says, In Paul's time, some of the leaders of Judaism were making such extravagant statements about the law that it put it virtually in the place of God. You see, for these Jews, their tradition became law-centered rather than God-centered. For them, possessing the law, memorizing the law, knowing the law, teaching the law, and keeping the man-made precepts that went along with the law had become attached to, to their life, and that's what they felt justified them. It wasn't a dependence upon God anymore. 
And this became so ingrained in their thinking that it was hard for them to see past this. It was so hard for them to see that they were not right with God. It was hard for them to see that they were on equal footing with the Gentiles that they despised. There's something about humanity where we want to look down on people. There's something about all of us that looks at a certain group of people, whether it's economics, whether it's whatever, we look at them as inferior. The Jews were exactly that. The notion that they were on equal footing with these dirty Gentiles was offensive to them because they truly felt superior in every way to the Gentiles. And so Paul, in this part of his diatribe, focuses on how the Jews see themselves in their pride in an effort to break through and help them to see the truth that they're no different and that they too need a Savior. So turn with me to Romans 2. We're going to look at beginning in verse 17. That's the context for where Paul jumps in. And Paul writes, But if you call yourself a Jew... Now, the word that's translated as but is actually better rendered as indeed. It's like an affirmation. Indeed, you call yourself a Jew is more like what Paul is getting at. You see, Paul, what he's doing here is he begins with the pride that these people felt for being Jews, for being called Jews. They were proud. They were proud of the label Jews. They're like, there was a time in in our history that almost everybody at some point in our history was proud to be an American, right? These Jews were especially proud to be Jews because because that name meant that they were God's special people. That was a badge of honor to them. It was a label that they wore with, with great pride. And so Paul, leveraging that pride, says, Indeed, indeed, you call yourself a Jew, And then with that, he unpacks several reasons for the Jewish pride and self-confidence. He says, he says, you were a Jew, right? And you rely on the law. Or in other words, you as a Jew trust in the law. You trust in the law to protect you when disaster comes, whether in this life or the life to come. You trust in the law to make you prosperous because the Jews did. They believed that if you were rich, then you were with, that God was with you and you were doing the right things. And if you weren't rich, then you were somehow you know, not doing the right things and you were sinners. So they trusted the law to keep them prosperous. You, you trust in the law to keep you safe. You use the law as a shield is what he's saying. You rely on the law to justify yourself to God and the world. And so he says, as Jews, you rely on the law and you boast in God. In other words, you as Jews boast about your relationship with God. And, and rightly so, right? Because God did single out the nation of Israel from among the nations. And He set her apart, right? So she could be a light to shine for the world. He rescued her from the bondage of Egypt. He led her forefathers out into the promised land. He established His presence among the Jewish people. Right? What a blessing. As Jews, they did have a special relationship with God. And it ought to be something they should be excited about. And so they boasted in their special relationship with God because it was a source of great pride to them. And then he says, not only do you boast in God, you also know His will, approve what is excellent because you are instructed from the law. He says, you know His will, literally the will, the will that must be conformed to all other wills, right? And you approve what is excellent, or in other words, you have moral discernments, right? You have the ability to discern what is good and what is bad. And the reason for that is because you are instructed in the law. You know the law inside and out. You have memorized the law and you can recite the law. Again, another huge source of pride. You were instructed in the law. And because of that, Paul says, you are sure that you yourself are a guide to the blind, a light to those who are in darkness, an instructor of the foolish, a teacher of 
children. In other words, because you have been given the law and because you have been instructed in the law, you believe yourself to be competent enough to teach others the law. And Paul uses several analogies that the Jews would have prided themselves in to to further that analogy, right? They would have gladly called themselves guides to the blind, right? We're Jews. We are guides to the blind, right? We are Jews. We are a light in the darkness, right? We We are instructors for the foolish. We are teachers of children looking down at the rest of the world with condescension, those foolish Gentiles, those baby converts, we are their teacher. The Jewish people saw themselves as wise teachers of the world, teaching the Gentiles who live in the darkness. They saw themselves as purveyors of the light. They saw themselves as the hope of the world. And they saw themselves as superior in everyone, in, to everyone else in every conceivable way. And then Paul says, you fancy yourself as teachers, of the world because you have the law, right? You have in the law the embodiment of the knowledge of truth. Paul says you possess in the law the embodiment of wisdom, the embodiment of knowledge, the embodiment of truth about God and about the world. In which Jews would say, absolutely, we possess the embodiment of knowledge and truth. That's why we're so wise, That's why we're so smart. That's why we're better than you all. That's why we're the teachers of the world. But see, Paul in his dialogue with this imaginary Jew who represents the Jewish mindset, he he makes use of razor-sharp wit to build up an irony that the Jews will not be able to escape. You see, he begins by building up this imaginary person, by citing his various distinctives about being a Jew. Paul, in essence, is complimenting this person, and he appears to appreciate them. But then Paul, is what he's really doing is he's setting them up to confront them in their pride and in their traditions. And he's going to confront them with the truth, because immediately Paul turns on them. This is the thing you have to see. We read this and we kind of miss this. Paul is being really gentle and like, you know, building them up. And then in an instant, like, like, a, uh, like a cross-examining attorney turns on them, right? And verse 21 says, you then who teach others, do you not teach yourself? You who are so close to God, you who have been instructed in the requirements of the law, you who teach others, what God requires in the law, do you teach yourself then? With this question, he has their attention, by the way, because they would have recognized really quickly, this is not a friendly question. They would have realized that this is a cross-examining kind of question that's going to put them on the spot. And then following up with that question, he asks a few more. He says, while you preach against stealing, do you steal? The implication being, yep, you do. You who say that you must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery? You who abhor idols, do you rob temples? Very pointed, direct questions at these men who boast in their ability to know the law. Now, Paul, understand, is not asking these questions rhetorically. He's asking them to emphasize the point that he made all the way back in verse 1 of chapter 2. Remember, he said, Therefore, you have no excuse, O man, every one of you who judges. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. Paul has taken this friendly little conversation and turned it into an indictment of their character. If you teach others what you know for a fact... The law requires, right? And that the wrath of God comes on those who don't do what the law requires. Do you then teach yourself? Because judging by the way you live and your actions, it doesn't seem like it. Because the truth is, you do all the things that you teach against. You preach against stealing, but you steal. 
You preach against adultery, but you secretly commit sexual sin. You, you say that you hate idols, but you gladly take the money that was given to idols. See, Paul turns a, ta- turns a table on them and points out their blatant hypocrisy, which, is, which was common in the first century. Despite their traditions and despite their superiority and despite their self-righteousness and despite all of their traditions and all of their clothing and the way they carried themselves, first century Judaism was rife with corruption and hypocrisy. A contemporary of Paul, Rabbi Jochen ben Zaki, emotionally cried out at the increase of murder and adultery and sexual vice and commercial and judicial corruption, and bitter division amongst the people of Israel, right? And these weren't, he wasn't complaining about all this happening to the Gentiles. He's talking about the Jews, that the Jews had become thoroughly corrupt. The very same Jews that knew the law and had taught the law, they didn't obey the law, and they hypocritically judged others by the law that they themselves disobeyed believing themselves to still be justified by God because, as Paul says, they're presupposing on God's kindness, that kindness that's meant to lead them to repentance, and presupposing on their status as Jews because of their tradition. And this was so rampant that the Gentile world had no real respect for the Jews. They saw them for what they were, posturing hypocrites, And because of that, Paul explodes on his imaginary adversary and says, you who boast in the law dishonor God by breaking the law. And then he adds, for it is written, the name of God is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. You think that being Jewish and possessing the law makes you right with God? You think knowing the law and being able to teach the law honors God? You boast in God's law and you should... And and you should boast in God's law, right? But then you turn right around and you dishonor God by breaking that law as if it's not important. Now, the word dishonor here is from a Greek word that means to despise or to treat disgracefully. Paul is saying that you who pridefully boast in the law before the world and demonstrate how well you know the law and go about judging everyone according to the law, But then you turn around and willfully disobey the law. When you do that, you despise the very God that you say that you love. By doing this, the God that you claim to love and venerate, the God that you claim to to be close to, you treat Him with utter disgrace. You may as well spit in His face. You may as well deny His existence like the Gentiles do. You claim to love God, but you cause His glorious name, the one true God, to be maligned and tarnished before the entire world. Again, Paul says, for as it is written, the name of God is blasphemed. It is blasphemed among the Gentiles because of you. God is not honored by you and your religious posturing. God is not honored by your knowledge of the law. God is not honored by your traditions. God is blaspheming because of you and your hypocrisy. Claiming to be people of God, your hypocrisy causes the world to despise Him. Now right here, when Paul says this, this is a full gut punch that he's given them now. Because blasphemy against God according to the law was grounds to be killed. Blaspheming God's name was grounds to be dragged out into the street and stoned to death. In fact, in John chapter 8, Jesus identifies himself as Yahweh by saying before Abraham was, I am. They knew exactly what he was saying, that he was claiming to be God. And what did they do? They went up and picked up rocks and tried to kill him because they believed him to be blaspheming. In fact, it was the very charge of blasphemy that caused the Sanhedrin to tear their clothes and send Jesus before Pilate. Blasphemy was a serious breach of the law. And here, Paul is saying that God's holy name is being mocked and ridiculed and being spoken of as evil and blasphemed because of the hypocritical Jews who teach the law and judge others according to the law that they themselves break. 
And understand, Paul is not saying God's name is being blasphemed because they fail to keep the law. Let's be clear about that. Because no one can keep the law. Paul is indicting the Jews because of their hypocrisy. It's hypocrisy that brings that blasphemy. They think themselves better than the Gentiles, not because they actually measure up to God's standard. They think they're better than the Gentiles because of their traditions. They think they're better off because they have been given the law. They, the law they themselves can't even keep. When Gentiles fail to keep the law, they're with an excuse because as Paul says, right, they have the works of the law written on their hearts. They know that what God requires because God created them in His own image. But the Jews, in their arrogance and pride, because of their tradition, cannot see that they're even more culpable for their sin because they, not only were they created in the image of God, and not only was the law written on their hearts as well, but God personally gave them the law written down, codified. God's law objectively preserved for them, which means they are even more accountable to keep it. But rather than recognizing their sin and repenting and hoping and looking and seeing their desperate need for a Savior like the Gentiles, they, because their tradition and their nationality feel superior to the Gentiles, even though they judge the Gentiles for their failures and do the exact same things. They preach against stealing, but steal. They preach against sexual sin and commit sexual sin. They teach the world what the law requires, but don't teach themselves. God is not blasphemed because of their failure to keep the law. God is blasphemed because of their hypocrisy. And again, as John Calvin says, hypocrisy can plunge the mind of a man into a dark abyss when he believes his own self-flattery instead of God's verdict. This right here is exactly what the Jews were facing. And Paul, in his gospel, points out that hypocrisy and systematically dismantles the Jews' self-righteousness, helping them to see that they're on equal footing with the Gentiles, that they too need a Savior. And in the next section, we will see Paul go even further and help the Jews overcome their blinders to their traditions, which is what we'll get into next week. But this week, as we wrap up, I want to draw some parallels between the Jews' then, and the Christians of today and the church today. Even though Paul's point, I want you to hear me, Paul's not addressing specifically the church here itself. There are still principles that we can, though, take away from this as we go on our personal walk with God, as we do so individually and corporately. I want to focus on the last phrase, the name of God is blaspheming among the Gentiles because of you. That's a sobering rebuke. That is a sobering statement. This was meant to be a serious rebuke because hypocrisy and the defamation of God's name that came as a result of hypocrisy was a huge and terrifying issue. Blasphemy brought the wrath of God. The issue that the Jews faced, and an issue that the church, I think, faces today is the same one. I think if there is one accusation that the world makes against the church at large, a charge that tends to stick is the charge of hypocrisy. We've all heard it, right? We've all heard people say, the church is full of hypocrites. And how many of us go, uh, yep, that's pretty much right. We've all agreed that this has been the case at the times. It's not always the case, but I mean, it, is, it happens a lot. Because the church has done things because of individuals and because of tradition that have dishonored God, right? And have given the world at large cause to blaspheme God's name, to look down on Him, right? And this should cut us to the quick. We should, this should cause us to mourn, actually, because we live and worship in a way, right? We are, to, we are supposed to live and worship in a way that God's name is magnified and lifted up, that God's name in the world will be made great. 
as Matt was talking about this morning, that, hit, that Jesus' name, that Jesus would be lifted high. We're supposed to live that way, but how do we do that? Well, some will say we need to get busy doing stuff. That's always the answer for a particular mindset that's not really reliant on the Scriptures, but more reliant on justice and emotions or culture. We need to just do more stuff is really the idea. We need to feed more people. We need to meet more of the people's needs. We need to be engaged in ministries of mercy. There are many churches who focus on those things. And by the way, those are good things, and churches should do those things, right? But there are many churches who focus on those things and make them central to their mission, who themselves still get caught up in the same hypocrisy. So it's not about external things that we're doing. It's actually about internal things that will help us follow God in a way that honors Him externally. It's about internal things that will cause us to honor God in the world around us in a way that the world will glorify Him. And with that, there are four applications I'd just like to offer you today as we wrap this up. And they come by way as reminders. First of all, we need to remind ourselves that we have nothing to boast about except Christ. I think that, you know, if, as Christians, if we just learned that one and applied that one, the whole view of the Christian world would change like that, that everybody would see it differently. We have nothing to boast about except Christ. The Jews boasted about their nationality. They boasted about their traditions and their status in the world because God had selected them at a point in history to represent Him. And that made them arrogant. Christians have no cause ever in any circumstance to be arrogant. Christian, if you were truly born again, you have been selected by God out of this world, like He selected the Jews out of this world. But understand, that has nothing to do with you and what you can do for God. This is why I get so frustrated when I hear preachers talk about your value and God saw something in you, and that's why, no! It has nothing to do with you and everything to do with God and His grace. God didn't save you because of some intrinsic value that you have personally. God saved you in spite of you. There's nothing that you could have done. There's nothing you can ever do that warrants God's love towards you. There's nothing you can offer God that causes Him to shine His face upon you. The only thing that you have going for you is that God is gracious. That's it. You were saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And even as a Christian, you have nothing to boast about. Not your church attendance. Not how many Bible studies you have done. Not how many sermons you have preached. Not what leadership position you have in the church. Not all the good works and good deeds that you have done. The only thing you have going for you that you can boast in is Christ and what He has done. Now, are those other things important? Yes, they're important. But those things didn't save you. There's only one thing that saved you. It was Christ alone. As Paul says in Galatians chapter 6, far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, by which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. So let us remind ourselves that we have nothing to boast about except Christ. I think that will automatically humble us before the rest of the world then. I think that would level the playing field and how people would see us. They wouldn't see us as those stuck-up Christians who think they're better than everybody else. By the way, most Christians I know don't fit in that category, but I have met some who fit that to the T. I think we all have. So we need to remind ourselves that we have nothing to boast about except Christ and then remind ourselves that we must judge fairly. The Jews judged hypocritically. They pronounced judgment on the Gentiles for doing the same things that they themselves were doing. Nothing is as ugly to the reputation of the church and ourselves personally as hypocrisy. In fact, by the way, I'm just waiting for the American people to finally get their fill of the hypocrisy of our leaders. They'll finally do something about it. 
because the hypocrisy is just blatant. I mean, all you got to do is look at someone's Twitter feed for like two years and you can see that they're telling you a lie. They say one thing one week and they say something else completely different. Nothing is as ugly to your reputation as hypocrisy. And nothing impugns the name of God as fast as our hypocrisy. Now, this doesn't mean that we're not to judge. A lot of people will say, well, that means we shouldn't judge. That does not mean that. In fact, we are exhorted in the Scriptures and other places to judge. But we're to judge equitably. We're to judge fairly. Not, not hip- hypocritically. As Jesus says in Matthew chapter 7, judge not that you be judged for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you seek the speck in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when, you, when there's a log in your own eye? You hypocrite. Now listen, what he says here, first, take out the log out of your own eye, then you can see clearly that you can take the speck out of your brother's eye. He didn't say just leave it in there, Right? He's saying, get yourself right before you start judging. This is a call to Christians to examine themselves. How many times do we get into an argument with somebody? How many times do we get sideways with people that we want to elevate and argue and fight when we don't even take the moment and say, wait a minute. They are being a jerk, but what have I done to contribute to this mess? All of our lives would be different if, in all of our relationships with other people, if we always started with, I'm going to take primary responsibility first and look at every situation and ask, what am I doing wrong before I start trying to correct other people? We need to, this is a call to self-examination as Christians, right? That we're looking at our own lives to see conformity to the Word of God and that we're making sure that we're not guilty of the very same things that we're irritated about in other people. We ought to do this long before we pronounce judgment on those around us. Next, we need to remind ourselves to be careful what we teach. The Jews taught that the law, Jews taught the law and they were right to do so, but they failed to teach the one thing that brought life, and that is faith in the promise. Because the gospel has always been about faith in the promise of the Messiah. They taught the way to be right with God was obedience to the law rather than dependence upon God and His promises. In the same way, well-meaning Christians will teach things that are true, but fail to be clear enough, and they fail to teach the most important truths, which is the gospel. And as a result, there are many people, if you ask them, many people, you ask them what the gospel is, and they'll tell you, uh, the gospel is love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and your neighbor as yourself. That's the gospel. Do you know why I know that? Because I've heard many people say that. People that I know, people that I don't know. And by the way, there was a survey done on that, that there's a substantial number of people who call themselves Christians say, that's the gospel. But that's not true. It's not the gospel. Loving your neighbor and loving God are not the gospel. That's the summary of the law. And by the way, you can't do it. Christian, go out and try it. Spend the next week and come back and report to me that you perfectly loved God the way that God needs to be loved and that you loved all of your neighbors the way that they ought to. Never mind that person. I mean, that person that you drive by that cuts you off on the freeway, that's your neighbor. You better love them too. We can't do those things. It's impossible for us. We cannot love God perfectly or the neighbors the way they ought to be. That's because we can't keep the law. That's why we need the gospel. But many people think that loving God and loving others is the gospel. And many people think that church attendance keeps them right with God. I've heard people say, I need to get right with God and get back in church. Many people think that they... That they that they have to obey a bunch of rules. I've heard people say, okay, uh, now I'm saved. I got I to gotta stay straight. As if somehow you're going to do something that you couldn't do to start with. And they think that because many Christians either, they think this, these errors, because many Christians have either deliberately taught this or most likely 
A lot of people have accidentally taught these things because they're unclear. This, by the way, is why theology matters. This is why doctrine matters. This is why precision with the gospel matters. We must be careful to what, what we teach, and we must teach it accurately, and we must continually and clearly to teach the most important thing, and that is the gospel, which leads to the final reminder. We need to remind ourselves every day of the gospel. Every day, you need to remind yourself of the gospel. You need to do so so you can teach others what the gospel is and, and correct those who are wrong about the gospel. But you also need to remind yourself of the gospel so you don't drift towards legalism in your own lives because that is the, that is the gravitational pull of all of us. We need to remind ourselves that we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And we will stay saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And when we fail to keep the law, when we fail to be obedient, the answer isn't, I need to try harder, I need to work harder, I need to... The answer is what the answer has always been. I need to repent and believe the gospel. That way you keep your eyes off of yourself and your self-righteousness and your eyes on Christ and His righteousness. So then what is the gospel? I'm glad you asked. The gospel is simply the good news. The gospel is not something you do. It is news that you declare. Do you understand that? That's the thing. You don't do news. People say, well, we're going to go do the gospel. You don't do the gospel. You proclaim the gospel. It's news. It's the news about, about who God is, that He is the almighty creator of all things, that He is holy, righteous, and just, and perfect in every conceivable way, and that God created us special, created us in an image, His image, and He created us to have an up-close personal relationship with Him. But then the bad news, that relationship was destroyed, not by Him, but by us, by our sin. Adam sinned and fell first, and we, His, his children, fell with Him. But not just because of that, because we willfully sin. No one held you down and made you sin the sins that you've sinned, right? We're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners by nature, children of wrath, rebels to God, hating Him, loving our sin, running from His grace. That's who we were. And worse, and worse, is because of that God's wrath abides on all who are in their sin, meaning there's coming a day when God will judge them in their sin and it will give them what they deserve, hell. And to make it even worse than that is once you figure it out that you are a sinner, you can't fix it by yourself. You can't live a righteous enough life. You can't be good enough, smart enough, you know, beautiful enough. You can't be loving enough, compassionate enough. You can't do enough good things for other people. You are condemned, as the Bible says, our righteousness are but filthy rags before God. That means then where we come to in the gospel, the bad news part of the gospel, is we finally come to the place where we can finally see what the truth is. There's a God who we were created to have a relationship with. That relationship's destroyed because of us, and there's nothing we can do to fix it. We are helpless and hopeless unless God does something to fix it. Now we're ready for the good news. The good news is that God did for us all the things that we couldn't do for ourselves. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, into the world, who was God, who became flesh. And in His humanity, lived the perfect life that we couldn't live, upholding the law that we couldn't uphold, securing for us a righteousness that we couldn't earn. And if that were not enough, He voluntarily went to the cross and suffered in unimaginable ways to pay the penalty of our sin, taking upon Himself the very wrath that was owed to us. And then, how do we secure these benefits? How do we get our sins washed away? How do we, we earn this righteousness? How do we get eternal life? Is it obeying a bunch of rules? Is it becoming awesome people? No. It's by faith and faith alone. 
that you repent and believe the gospel and you spend the rest of your life doing that exact same thing, repenting and believing the gospel. And the promise is that God himself will take up residence in your heart, come inside of you and change you from the inside out, causing you to love the God that you once hated and hating the sins that you once loved, making you more and more in the image of Christ. And then on top of that, he says, I'll never leave you and I'll never forsake you. And then when it's all said and done, you have the assurance that he personally will help you cross that final line and deliver you safely home to be in the presence of God forever. That is the gospel, and that's the only hope that we have in the world. That is what has been secured for us. That's the truth we must always be clear on and not confuse for those around us. That's the truth we need to remind ourselves and also then share with others. Let me pray for you. You've been listening to the preaching ministry of Pastor Sherman Burkhead, a production of First Baptist Church in Boron, California. Our website address is fbcboron.org. And would you please consider partnering with us financially as we work to share the hope and the gospel of Jesus Christ with our community and our world.